Recovery Elevator, episode 76. I cannot afford to do it once, not once, because that will be the end. My disease will be triggered, and I will have no defenses, and I will need to do it again. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 22 months and two weeks. On today's podcast, we've got Simon. He's from the UK, relocated to Thailand, has been sober for 15 years. He went to rehab several times, but finally, finally something stuck. I got the idea for today's podcast episode off a book that I recently read called This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol by Annie Grace. I also had the pleasure to interview Annie, and that podcast episode will be coming out in just a couple weeks. This book, for me, is somewhat of a game changer. First off, if you heard the words control alcohol in the book title and you're just about to press pause and go purchase this book, let me stop you right there because that was kind of a ploy to sell more books. I don't want to use the word ploy in the derogative sense. I think it's genius because the person that book was written for probably is not ready to completely quit drinking for the rest of their life. Imagine walking by in Barnes and Noble and seeing a book that says this naked mind, never drink a sip of alcohol in your entire life. That book would probably sell four copies because a lot of people, when they begin this journey, including myself, there is an obsession to find a way to control their drinking. I often, when I ask the question to my interviewees, did you ever have any plans that to moderate that worked, you know, things like that. You've heard that question a bunch of times. I often find my mind putting the pen to paper thinking, okay, maybe this guy has got it. But let me save you the trouble. I can tell you how the book ends right now is there is no way to control alcohol. In fact, the best way to do it is 100% abstinence. But the reason why I say this book is kind of a game changer for me is because it contradicts what I've said on this podcast countless times is this is the most complicated disease we have ever experienced. The book actually simplifies the whole process and breaks it down into something that's a lot easier to grasp, both for the medical community, both the family, and both the alcoholic And again, the word alcoholic, is that really beneficial to fighting the stigma? What it says is it may be as simple as this. Alcohol is an extremely addictive substance that everybody will become addicted to at one point in their life. The genetic makeup will determine at what point that person becomes addicted to alcohol. What that means is if we all live to 500 years old, everybody would be an alcoholic if you chose to drink. That's actually the same thing with going bald. Right now, I've been blessed with short white jeans, but I've also got a great head of hair. But I've learned that if I were to live to be 500 years old, I would be completely bald. So think about that for a second. Are we really different than other people? Or did we A, make a choice to drink? Because B, you could have the perfect wiring to become an alcoholic. But if you never drink, you'll never become an alcoholic. It's that simple as well. But A, we made the choice to drink, but B, our genetic makeup, which makes us more predispositioned than other people to become addicted to alcohol at a faster clip. Boom. It could be that simple. That alcohol, just like heroin, cocaine, just like nicotine, caffeine, and a whole other hell of a lot of other substances is addictive. Why the word alcoholic refers only to alcohol if it's an addictive substance, I'm not sure. Because with that reasoning, I would fall into the addict category. Just like somebody would be addicted to heroin. They're not a heroinaholic. They're not a cigaretteaholic. They're not a cocaineaholic. They're addicted to a very addictive substance, drug, called alcohol or heroin or methamphetamines. So while I was reading this, I found it fascinating that this view, this approach to the most complicated disease in the world 
was viewed from a lens that was so simple. And as I continued to read, I had an assumption. I was like, wait a second. I don't think this girl, Annie, has ever stepped foot into a 12-step meeting, which that's not a bad thing. AA does not hold the monopoly on recovery. That's not the only way to get sober. This woman, the author, got sober through a different means. She went through a more factual route, started opening up textbooks, talking to people, interviewing people. And I almost found that was more of an asset on her side than a liability. You would think it's strange that, yeah, I'm going to write a book on recovery without knowing anything about a 12-step program. But I think that worked to her benefit in this case. And again, Recovery Elevator is not associated with any 12-step program. And I've said multiple times on my podcast, I'm an advocate for those programs. They help a lot of people. But what I read in her book was a game changer. And actually right now we're going to talk about a specific chapter in the book called The Conscious Mind and the Unconscious Mind. This would actually explain Gary, my addiction. You often hear me talking about Gary. Damn it, why do you keep lying to me on my own voice? Well, Gary has a formal surname. That would be the unconscious mind. So what is the unconscious mind and the conscious mind? Well, the conscious mind is aware of something, knowing that something exists or is happening at that current moment. What is the unconscious mind? Well, this is the part of the mind that a person is not aware of, but is a very powerful force controlling our behavior and decision making. And we'll get to why in just a sec. But what is consciousness? Well, consciousness is simply being aware of something within oneself. It's the upper level of mental life that a person is aware of as contrasted with the unconscious process. And here's a warning before you proceed. This may blow your mind because it blew my mind. And before I go any further, you can find a link to purchase this book at recoveryelevator.com in the podcast episode 76. There will also be show notes of what I'm discussing right now. So the unconscious mind is responsible for all of our desires. Studies show we have two separate thinking systems, the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. When we want something to change in our life, we usually make a conscious decision, aka I am done drinking for good. However, the decision to not drink for the rest of my life, it's not a conscious decision at that moment. It would be a decision that has to be made at the root level or in the unconscious part of the mind. So for me, not drinking for the remainder of my life or simply for the rest of the day is not a conscious decision. You might hear this and say, oh, it's simply a habit. Well, it's not a habit. It's an addiction. And here is a line that I absolutely love. When I made the decision to quit drinking for the rest of my life, I don't know, say three, four, five hundred times in the morning, the unconscious mind, it was as simple as this. It didn't get the memo. Gary, pull up a fucking chair, amigo, because we're going to have a chat. Well, I had requested Gary to pull up a chair countless times, but I know now Gary never got the damn memo. So this is why when we want to drink less, our unconscious mind tells us to drink more. Insert major emotional dilemma here for a long frickin' time. We have been conditioned to believe in alcohol, to believe in it like we believe in the Pledge of Allegiance. I know I personally have been conditioned that me and some random captain would make it happen, that Captain Morgan guy, is ludicrous. However, my unconscious mind believes that. The unconscious mind is not logical. It is comprised of feelings, observation. It's the source of love, jealousy, fear, kindness, and sadness. However, most of our decisions are based off our unconscious mind's experiences, which is not based on fact and reasoning or logic. It's based on what we've been conditioned to know. How does the unconscious mind learn? Well, it automatically and unintentionally learns just by living what we see on TV, what commercials we watch. We're asked what bottle of wine we want when we go to a nice restaurant. Regardless if we know it or not, we have been conditioned to think that alcohol is the bee's knees. 
After saying that phrase, I googled does a bee have knees, and it's confirmed. Yes, they have segmented legs, and they do have knees. Okay, I waver. Back to the topic. This is incredible. Studies dating back to the 1970s indicate our unconscious mind makes a decision one-third of a second faster than the conscious mind. It takes more than a third of a second to bring a bottle of beer to your lips, but that drink can end up in your hand faster than your conscious mind will ever know it. So what we have been conditioned to learn through our unconscious mind is our culture of drinking makes everything better. And this has been ingrained in our minds, well, for me, since I was born. One easy way to challenge this by using the rationale portion of your brain is to do some external validation. For example, see that guy drinking a Tom Collins? Is he as cool as a Tom Selleck? Definitely not. Will a Bud Light Lime increase my 40-yard dash time? Well, I've actually tested that one. That's a solid no. Jack Sparrow, he drank a lot of rum and was a badass pirate. I remember one time doing a booze cruise in Nicaragua and the captain consumed just as much if not more rum than all of us. And he was a total butt dart, not even close to being as cool as Jack Sparrow. External validity not true, allowing me to arrive at the conclusion that I have been duped. Damn it, I have been duped. So why do we allow the unconscious mind to determine the majority of our thinking? Well, because we like certainty. The unconscious mind is a bubble of safety where we feel comfortable. You've heard me say this a couple times, nothing cool happens in your comfort zone. Sobriety, not located in your comfort zone. Why did I find it so hard to quit drinking? Well, I was conditioned to believe that all my friends would leave me. That there was no way I could have fun at a social event without alcohol. I didn't think I'd be funny. Talking to girls, no freaking way. So unfortunately, the way that a lot of us quit drinking is we experience extreme turmoil and pain, aka the bottom. And really, unless the pain points are strong enough, no one's going to make change. So a simple way to address this is bring in unconscious experiences, observations, assumptions, and conclusions into conscious thought. Really, the external validity of that. Walk yourself through that. If you see a commercial on TV, write it down, journal about it, think about this for a second. Use the dome you have been given, which is a very powerful tool. Think about it and say, look, I've played beach volleyball many times. And according to that commercial, the people drinking and playing beach volleyball are really good. My real life experience, the more alcohol we drank while playing beach volleyball, the worse our serves got. In fact, we were terrible. A, this is a thinking disease, but B, you can actually think through parts of it. You can't think your way through this thing. I've learned that and said that a hundred times, and I still stand by that statement. But you can use some thinking to rationalize what you're seeing in the public view. Does that even make sense? Okay, and before we hear from our interviewee, Simon, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Simon, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Paul, and thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining me. Simon, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Coming up for 15 years in November. Wow. 
nice job of 15 years. And Simon, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and maybe what do you like to do for fun? Okay, I'm from England, London, England. I'm middle-aged, uh, 53 now, and uh, very grateful to have made it to this age. Uh, there was a point I didn't think I would, so I identify myself as an addict, a recovering addict. My interests and hobbies, well, that's what got me to Thailand, where I live now. Uh, I love traveling, especially in recovery, because the recovery network is uh, very wide and broad, and uh, everywhere I used to go, I I, I, I get in contact with other recovering addicts and attend NA meetings. Um, and I found myself in Thailand where I've now resettled. I love it. Now let's uh, jump right into the podcast title, Recovery Elevator Simon. Talk to me about your bottom. When did you finally decide to stop drinking? Well, my bottom, I, I think I had many bottoms, rock bottoms. But I and, and I, I very luckily got the opportunity to go to rehab um, a few times. Sometimes I'm a bit shy to say how many times, but I got that opportunity uh, until I was ready to stay sober, clean and sober on the outside. My my absolute rock bottom came. I sometimes identify it as one event. Uh, I don't know why, but my mind goes there to when I I, I was a heroin addict, Paul. And I overdosed. I overdosed a few times, but this time I woke up on my kitchen floor alone. It was no other, no other dramatics. I wasn't rescued by anyone. I came to and I found myself lying on my kitchen floor and I had the syringe still in my arm. And something went through my mind. My mother had been leaving uh, food parcels outside the, my, my front door. Um, she, she, she knew I was too down to open the door even. Um, and I thought, my mo- my mother would have been the one to find me probably and and that filled me full of so much shame and so much guilt to do that to her um i it drove me to seek help again and that and that time when i when i got the help it was a 12 step rehab and um and i i fully embraced the program so i went further than i had it in the past and uh, I had a spiritual experience in that rehab. So there was a couple of things that made a difference, um, a really, really uh, profound rock bottom. And, and I, mean, I mean, an emotional rock bottom. It wasn't losing money or material things or they had all long gone. But it was an emotional rock bottom that I believe prompts most people into recovery if they get that opportunity. Simon, that is incredible. You said a value bomb. You had many bottoms. I personally had several bottoms where I said, you know what? Life can't get any worse than this. But sure enough, a week later, a year later, there were the bottom kept going down. Yeah, now, Simon, I understand your story has a lot to do with drugs. Now, where mm-hmm. did alcohol play a part in this? Well, I mean, alcohol played a part consistently throughout because uh, I would... I would um, either use drugs or alcohol, and often alcohol was the substitute for drugs, uh, being that alcohol was more available, obviously, in the shops in London where I lived, and uh, uh, the drugs that I sought were very expensive, um, and so so alcohol was there as well. Uh, but I, I do identify as an addict, uh, but I'm an alcoholic as well. I mean, to me, they're just words. 
I know what for me. And I go to I, I go to NA, but I actually and what may have made a difference, an interesting point you make, um, is actually this 15 years uh, that I have in recovery um, was uh, the foundation was from AA. So um, previous to that, I tried in NA, and I love NA, and I connect in NA. But I went to AA um, for I was seeking maybe uh, uh, some maturity and uh, some rigorous direction from a sponsor and that's what I got uh, like I say my last bottom took me to a place where I was willing to do anything to recover um, once I'd got that opportunity uh, uh, and so I, I went to I was willing to go to those same lengths as I as, as I went to when I used so I had a very disciplined recovery to begin with and it was just about service meeting attendance and helping other addicts and alcoholics. But it was in AA, but I also, also attend NA. Nice. And you reminded me of something that the motivational speaker Tony Robbins talks about, which is a very dangerous place to be, and that is no man's land. That is where the mm. pain points aren't strong enough to really create a change. And like you just said, that last moment, your bottom with this syringe sticking outside of your arm, and your mom would have been the one to find you, was such an emotional bottom that the pain points were so strong that you just said you were willing to do whatever it takes to get sober. Now I am mm. I'm, I'm going to explain a little bit more about Simon with your with Simon's love of traveling. He co-founded with a Thai woman. It was called it's called Hope Rehab Center in Thailand. Is that correct? That's correct. And the, the Thai lady's name is Alon, and she is a yoga and meditation instructor. Okay, and is this a rehab facility for alcoholics, addicts in general? Yeah, tell me more about this place. Yes, it's a traditional rehab. It's a 12-step rehab. We also use uh, more contemporary methods as well, or shall we say approaches. So we've incorporated mindfulness, as, uh, as many people will uh, understand. It's very popular these days as a tool for recovery. Uh, we also use a lot of fitness there, but it is a 12-step rehab, and we also use CBT, just to clarify that. But we're a traditional rehab. We're a detox rehab for alcoholics and drug users of many varieties. What is CBT? CBT is a modern form of therapy, probably the most popular form of therapy being used now. Um, it means cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, cognitive is conjures up a picture of cogs in your mind so it's about thinking it's about uh, uh, addressing uh, thinking patterns that may be destructive or maladaptive as they call call it but it's it's the same thing that 12-step therapy has been doing for many years but it carries a different name and maybe it's been refined more and more and more with many different exercises and tools that uh, that, that people can use Simon, I've heard many times that alcoholism addiction is a thinking disease. So CBT, cognitive behavioral thinking, would make a lot of sense on that. Now talk to me mm. about mindfulness. I've heard that word many, many times. What is mindfulness and what does that approach on recovery look like? Good question. Mindfulness is a modern term uh, that springs from meditation practice. 
the idea behind meditation practice. There's different forms of meditation, as many of your listeners will know. But shall we just go straight to the type of meditation? Yes. Yeah, it, it encourages a form of uh, a practice whereby the, the, the person doesn't buy into their thinking or their thoughts. So where CBT digs into your thinking and it looks for the origins of your thinking and it looks to change your thinking, mindfulness takes a different approach. It's more about letting go of the thoughts, letting them flow past you and not buying into them, clearing your mind. So, so that's from the meditation perspective. But mindfulness, as you can imagine, when you do something mindfully, it means focusing all your attention on something. So, if, so you can walk mindfully, you can eat mindfully, you can work mindfully. So obviously, the more mindful a person is, the more successful they'll be at whatever they're doing. And I think for addicts and alcoholics, where there's been damage, uh, neurologically, uh, mindful practice is very useful to regenerate the strength of their, or their abilities. Simon, mindfulness sounds like something I struggle with, which is being present in the moment. Is that correct? Yes. That's, that's, so that's a big part of it, Paul. You're right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, earlier you said you've been to rehab more than once. Can I ask you how many times you've been to rehab? Oh, yes. Um, I, I, I luckily got the opportunity to go a number of times, 12 times. But um, please understand that some of those, a few of those times, I, I left very, very quickly. So, you know, the, the disease, as I call it, was, would come on me maybe just after my detox. And then I would, I would bolt, I'd run, I'd demand my possessions, and I, there's nothing anyone could do to stop me. Anyone who's worked in the rehab or been in rehab indeed will probably understand what, what I'm saying, and they will have seen other people do the same, uh, suddenly decide that they can't handle it and leave. So I did that a few times. But uh, um, there were a number of times that I did see the rehabs through, and I gained knowledge, I gained uh, I gained a uh, wonderful experience of being clean and sober uh, on all the occasions. But unfortunately, when I left, something would go wrong or I wouldn't, you know, I would, I'd go to meetings, but I, I wouldn't follow through on a lot of the suggestions, shall we say. I won't go into them all. And, uh, you know, the same old gremlins would come up, the same old demons would come up, and then... Well, really, as many addicts and alcoholics will know, when that, that craving hits and I, I wasn't able to use the tools that, I'd been, that had been suggested and, and combat the craving, uh, and I would use, and I was one of those that if I used or drank once, it was gone, lost. Uh, one is too many and a thousand never enough. That was true of me. Once and it's gone. So I, I finally learned got that through into my head 15 years ago i cannot afford to do it once not once because that will be the end my disease will be triggered and i will have no defenses and i will need to do it again so i think that accepting that and getting through a couple of very very difficult cravings and using the tools basically uh, laid the foundation of uh, a successful recovery thus far and i'm forever grateful for that and i owe that to the fellowships i have to be honest that's where although we 
use many different practices in the rehab it was the aa fellowship where i found my recovery and i'll always remember that and that you know very important to me simon i've done 77 interviews right now and what you said in the last minute pretty much summarized the roadmap to recovery from what i have surmised and let's just recap right there you said one is too many a thousand is not enough so first off you need to accept that you said you had to accept the fact that one is too many and a thousand is not enough. After that, you said, when I get cravings, I have to go inside my bag of tools and deal with the cravings right there. Those are huge value bombs. And also you said it before the dear John letter saying goodbye. So you've got to say goodbye. You also have to accept the fact that you can't have even one and then dig inside your spiritual, your mental, physical toolkit and get past the cravings. Wow. That right there was awesome. Thank you for that. And I want to talk about the 12 rehab visits, Simon. To me, that's a tremendous asset and not a liability on your skill sheet, shall we say, because the take what you want and leave the rest mentality you probably did just that when starting your rehab facility now talk to me about mm. that what did you take from the rehab facilities that you liked and what did you leave from the ones that you necessarily didn't like well that's a you know very perceptive of you because that's exactly the way i think about it just in that question because i do i i, I feel that we have a very successful program and center Partly, obviously, because I have a wonderful team and I work with wonderful people, but partly from my experiences previously in rehabs, not just the work I've done. You know, I've been working for 15 years in the business, but, but yes, from my personal experience. And, of course, I went through many different types. I tried everything. I tried the softer options. I tried anywhere that would take me, really, uh, when I was desperate. And so to pinpoint anything in particular... I think someone once said it to me, and I think it summarizes it nicely. You know, professionals in the business of trying to help addicts and alcoholics recover seek to motivate people. But what makes a difference is those of us who can inspire people. So role modeling is so important. So I can talk about all this fanciful CBT and mindfulness and everything that goes on. But actually, I think one of the most important elements in hope rehab and, and good rehabs generally, and many people will recognize this in their own institutions or wherever they work, good role models, good role models. So when I look for staff or people, or many people volunteer for us and interns, that they're good role models. That they're, and when I say good, obviously that word, healthy role models, people who are demonstrating that recovery works, that we can have a life after drugs and alcohol. That's probably one of the fundamentals. And so that's something I took from my own experience uh, when I think about some of the role models that inspired me. I still remember them. I often say to people, I still have the voice of the most important counselor in my head. He's in my head. Wow. He's actually dead now. Uh, God rest his soul. Wonderful man, uh, Irish Frank. And he was a humble man, a modest man, you know, but he was spot on with recovery. And whenever I was down or struggling or fighting them, he would just say something that would just kick in immediately. And I would just have to breathe out with surrender, you know, and that man's voice is still there. So he may be dead and buried, but he's alive in my head still. And so I say that to my counselors, 
People will take you away with them. You will be in their heads, your voices. You have sat with them for many hours talking with them. So that is one of the most important elements of what, what I took away from my own experience, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And instead of the method where it's like, hey, guys, take a seat, pull out your pen and paper. I'm going to blow your mind with a, with a bunch of CBT, you know, words, analogies <laughs> and, you know, scientific yeah. data. You're taking more of the role model approach and you focus on your team, a team that you put together to help these people that come. I think that is fantastic. And talk to me a little bit about your success rates and I want I, I want you to give it to me straight, and I don't think you'll give it to me any, any other way. Simon, I want to be transparent. I've had several requests from people who own rehab facilities to be on the podcast, several requests from marketing directors for them to be interviewed, and it's always a no, no, no. Um, the, mm. way, the reason why I accepted this one, it kind of came in a roundabout way. It wasn't through you. Uh, it wasn't from you. It was like, hey, you know, this is where I got sober. You should think about interviewing the director. I was like, wow, okay. Or not the director, the founder. And so, um, yeah, so talk to me about, like, the success rates. What Are you guys seeing some success? You've been open for two, three years now? Yeah, we are seeing some success. But let me just clarify success. I mean, how do we measure? Exactly, so, yes. I mean, I'm glad you're going to do this first. You and I probably would think the similar about people who – Stay in consistent recovery and that's obviously what we want I mean the alternative let's be honest is a painful life and death right yeah. that's what I've witnessed unfortunately sadly I have witnessed people die I I know many people who've died work especially working but I think anyone who attends AA or NA will have stories harrowing stories about people they've met who are no longer with us it's a fatal illness so, you know, it's very, very serious business we're in. And I often describe it as one of, uh, of it's a very high stress job. Let's make no bones about this. People, I mean, the people where I work are passionate, you know, passionate about their work and get very, you know, that can be too, pro can, that can be good and bad, you know, taking it home with you and over emotionally involved. And, but the point is they're very passionate because they're in recovery. So, so it's a very high-stress job. Now, when I was in my final rehab, I'll never forget this other guy who turned around to us all in the group, and he said, he, I think he gave us statistics, I think there was 10 of us in the group, and he said, eight of you are going to relapse. Two of you will stay in recovery. Wow, this guy I, said that in, in rehab, like, like day one, yeah. two, or three? Well, I don't know. It was a, I've probably been there a month, and I just remember we were having a class with him, he said it like it was. He was not a messer, this guy. And he said it straight. And I sat there. And I knew he was right. I'd been through so many re rehabs. I knew he was right. And I knew it would kill me. And I thought to myself, I'm going to make this work, whatever it takes. So, But those are the sorts of odds addicts and alcoholics are up against, yeah? So um, I think, basically, if you look in Western rehabs, particularly... You know, government-funded ones that don't have maybe as much on offer um, or the high staffing levels on offer and also are under pressure to take people who aren't always as motivated, let's say, as the people who come to us, right? So these are factors that matter. So when people are forced into treatment centers, I do believe it can help. It can plant seeds and they can grow later and so on. But 
it has a bearing on the, their statistics. So our statistics are slightly higher because we filter out unwilling clients or clients that we don't deem appropriate. I'm very lucky. I get more inquiries than I need, and I'm, I'm fortunate. And I'm also trying to be responsible. People come to Thailand. They leave their home countries, USA, UK, Australia, wherever, and they come to us. So I need to be responsible, Paul. And we can't have people coming, you know, half-motivated, half run-off or anything like that. We cannot have that. We're very, very strict. So we filter out. We take the highest-motivated people. We obviously, like I say, have a, have a very large team, so they have a high ratio of, of staff who are in recovery and role models to clients. So uh, we do have, I'm not going to put a figure on it because I, I don't like figures. I'm not avoiding it. I could say roughly 50%, but I'm, I'm not going to give you an exact figure because it'd be difficult to do that. We're two and a half years. We do have people, a good number of people, uh, who are still clean and sober, who came to us from the beginning and in the first year and so, so they're still with us. We have a online um, group, aftercare group, and they're all still members and they still post and we're still in touch. But um, So I don't want to put a figure, but I think, you know, I think we're an, at an advantage is what I'm saying. Because we're in Thailand, because we filter very carefully, um, we're, we're at an advantage. People pay as well. It's not insurance. So people pay from their own pockets or their parents pay for them or their loved one. And that makes a difference. There are, there's a few elements, if you break it down, Paul, that give us a little bit of an edge. Does that help? Does no, that Simon, that's, I, can, I can leave that answer right there. That works for me. You're right. There are so many factors that take into account. And even if you said, hey, Paul, we're, we're 95%, you'd probably be able to back that up with a way – you're asking the data, you know, the, another guy from a rehab facility I had on, he said, we're at about 50, you know, 50 to 60%. I'm like, wait a second. That's, that's not right. And then I asked how mm -hmm. they get their data. He's saying, well, mm -hmm. those are the people that have responded from the envelopes that we send out. I'm like, well, yeah, that's yeah. it right there. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're, if you, if you've relapsed, you're just going to see the letterhead and you're just going to rip that letter up or you're drunk. There's Correct. no way you're going to fill out this five page questionnaire and return it. Correct. It's yeah. all manipulated the figures. So when I see, Although I have to put some figures on my website because everyone does, and if you and, and and to be honest, Paul, people parents call up and say, "What are your success rates?" And you know, I don't go into a whole long answer that I've just given you. I have to give them some sort of indication, and and also governments want some sort of indication, and public people want some sort of what are we spending our taxpayers' money on? So for that reason, there's statistics, but you and I both know that they can be manipulated according to what you want. It was Mark Twain who said, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And yep. I tend to agree with him. <laughs> yeah, and I actually appreciate the answer you gave me instead of the flat out, well, Paul, we're at 72%. No. I love it. Hey, do you guys have to take uh, like a percentage of, of Thai residents? I think you just said the taxpayers of oh. Thailand are paying. No, no, I, mean, I meant really, I was talking theoretically in, the, in Western countries. But, oh, 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 let me answer that. We do take ties. In fact, this month I've got three. It's not as easy. And, of course, it's uh, in, in tie standards and costs, uh, we're quite expensive. But I give, bigger, I give big discounts for a tie who speaks English and can fit in with us take advantage of the program so uh, we do take ties yes and I'm 
I'm always offering uh, the occasional free bed to a, a Thai national because we're so grateful to be here and to be running the facility here. I can't tell you how wonderful it is. And the Thai government have, we work closely with the Thai government. Um, my staff and I train their rehab facilities. They have wonderful rehab facilities. They could do with training, uh, updating their training. They have some great people working there, as I've found out from going in, because so there's a perception that they don't, but it's not true. They have some really good centers here, and they do some really good work. What they need desperately in Thailand is more of a, a mutual aid fellowship, a 12-step fellowship. Uh, they're slow to get off the ground. So we're all working really hard to try and encourage Thai-speaking NA and AA meetings. And my next question is going to piggyback off that. I think I already know the answer of why the 12-step programs are not fully taken off the ground. What is the stigma like in Thailand? And before you answer that question, I'm going to just going to, I'm going to reference it back home to what the stigma is like in America. A couple months ago, summer's about to start. I see a Budweiser commercial. The beer is actually now called America. Yeah, it says Budweiser, but in bigger font, it says America. I'm just like, now I'm like, come on. Now now it's un-American to drink Budweiser? I mean, that is not helping the uh, stigma uh, at all. So what is the stigma like in Thailand? Well, the, you, know, you know, on a couple of levels. So there's the stigma, and like in many uh, developing countries, Thailand's one of the more developed developing countries, but still it's important how you appear in the community that your children will get decent jobs and a decent go at education. It's, it's so, you know, it's so important. So, so they tend to want to sweep it under the carpet. And also, I guess, historically, you know, help has been, uh, you know, inconsistent. So you couldn't always get help. So all you could do was really sweep it under the carpet. But now help is available. Like I say, there are public rehabs. Uh, hospitals are more adept to offering detoxes. So it's it's opening up, but you're right. That's a big part of it, uh, the stigma attached to it. But then there's the other side to it. There is a lot of alcohol abuse here. And, and, and also there's the famous Yabba, you know, the methamphetamine. So historically in Asia, uh, methamphetamine has uh, always been abused. And uh, also alcohol is readily available, very cheap. And, you know, the poorer segment of the population work really hard get home don't have a lot and will you know turn to a drink and so it's commonly abused everyone in a village knows there's always two or three alcoholics in if not more in, in a small village in 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 the northern thailand uh, you know where the rice fields are so so it's it's a big thing but but there are sticking points and i do wonder sometimes why has it not developed more than it has, the fellowship? Because so many good people here really trying hard to develop these fellowships. But now, let me just quite say, uh, the end of my answer is that now the, the rehabs and the institutions have reached out to us, and that's what they've asked for. They've asked for us to share our 12-step program, you know, our 12-step rehab program with them so they can start to introduce addicts and alcoholics to the 12 steps whilst they've got them in their care. So this is a big difference, and it's just happened over the last couple of years. So we're looking forward to things growing. That is so cool, Simon. And, and where do we find your recovery clinic? How, how do we find your rehab center online? Oh, very easily, yeah, online. Uh, tap in Hope Rehab Thailand. I pop up, 
uh, that's that's easy to find. Uh, my my website. I'm very proud of my website. So we've got 300 pages of very very useful information uh, written by myself and many many guests who've contributed. Uh, much in the same way you run your podcast. You know, recovering. I invite recovering alcoholics, addicts to offer their stories, any insight that they could offer anyone. So so uh, if I could put that out there, I'd love it if. Um, anyone wants to send me their story or anything they've got to say, uh, their experience, you know, something useful, and we put it on our blog. That would be brilliant. Absolutely. And listeners, I want to be transparent here. This is not an affiliate deal that I have set up with Simon. If, if, if somebody listening goes to your rehab facility in Thailand, Simon, I don't get a commission or kickback. In fact, I cannot advocate, I cannot say on this podcast that, Simon, you've got a great rehab facility. I've never been there. But I yeah. find your story very inspiring. And maybe there's a way that I could go there and perhaps volunteer. I'm going to hold you accountable. Would it be possible mm-hmm. for me to come out there to Thailand and volunteer sometime? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I always have at least three or four volunteers. I always have two interns, psychology interns. As you'll see, if you pop onto the site, you'll see volunteer intern page. Um, I get requests every day. Um, it's, I'm very lucky. I'm very, very lucky. And no, I don't pay commission to anyone because we try and keep our fees as low as possible. So I'm not in a position to. But um, and no, you're, I mean I'm not affiliated. I, I'm very, very grateful though to be invited. And I know, um, and an ex-client contacted you and uh, and asked you because uh, she basically I won't say her name, but she contacted me and said, "Oh, I found this amazing uh, recovery elevator, this amazing recovery podcast. I listen to every day because she was somewhere where she couldn't find meetings." So you. Paul are helping people stay clean and sober and has you have helped one of my clients actually amazingly and so she because she wants to you know encourage what we're doing contacted you (laughs) (laughs) you it's funny how it works right but yeah I'd love to have you come come and volunteer and Check us out. You'll love it. Well, Simon, my cheeks are now red from the flattery, and you're going to see my red cheeks in Thailand hopefully one day. Um, Oh, yeah. You know what? I'm going to drill back into your recovery. I'm interested about you, Simon. What does your recovery portfolio consist of these days? You're 15 years sober. What does it consist of these days? Walk me through a day of Simon. Okay. Well, let me just say my early recovery, let's say the first, at least the first five years, I did at least one meeting a day. I was a gardener in my first five years and I had a van and a mower and I just put flyers out and I got plenty of work. I loved my work, but I could go to a meeting whenever I wanted. So I would go at lunchtime and often in the evening as well. I, like I said earlier, service, service, service. You know, I was committed. I knew I needed to stay real close. So that's what I did. But then, um, uh, you know, as I matured, in my recovery and traveled. Um, so, so, you know, I broadened my horizons and I, I took an interest in other developments, uh, self-development courses, Mankind Project. I don't know if you've heard of it. Some people call it Warriors. It's a bit of an extreme sort of men's group. But anyway, yeah, Tell me more about that. I've never heard of the Mankind. Uh, a lot of people in AA will, will have been. Uh, so when I went on my weekend, there were 35 men there, and at least half of them were in recovery also. Uh, and, the, and it was refreshing that the other half were not. 
they were civilians. You know, they were all civilians. Really, I love that nice. word. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that was really nice to meet someone who's not in recovery yet taking an interest in what we what we what we're interested in. You know, a deeper level of consciousness and. Um, improving ourselves, developing ourselves on a more spiritual level, you know. So that was really, that was the first thing I liked about it. I can't say too much about the Mankind Project because, believe it or not, I'm sworn to secrecy. So the idea is that uh, you sign up and then you you enter this weekend on Friday at 5 p.m. and you come out the other side on Sunday night, uh, sort of, you know, having gone through an incredible process of, well, I think change and uh, and realization that's what happened for me but you go through quite uh, an intensive weekend and process and and if we talk about it too much it can people can make judgments about it sure. when you know it's a bit it's like i say to people about meetings who you know you talk to people about who who haven't ever been to a meeting and they're saying negative things and say hold on you've never even been <laughs> pump the you know the there, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, the amount of family members that come and sit in a meeting at Hope or anywhere, I've seen, um, who, who aren't addicts themselves or alcoholics and say, my God, that was the most profound experience I've ever had. Yep. You know, the fact is that when you do it, you realize how amazing it is. But uh, so, so, yeah, I can't go into the details uh, about the weekend. I do send people on it still, you know, even though it was years ago that I did it. Some of my clients who I feel need an extra boost. I will recommend them to go on that weekend. And some of them go, and it's interesting when they get back in touch with me. Wow, that was amazing. You know? So, yeah, so I, I won't go into any more detail about the Mankind Project, but uh, it really helped me, and it reinforced my recovery. And I always suggest people always look for, you know, a, a boost to their recovery. Because as you and I know, it's a daily process you know and uh, things change it's always good to change and to improve ourselves especially if we're going through a difficult time that's the time to improve ourselves further whoa whoa, uh, whoa. Than... especially when we're going through a difficult time so yeah. I, I i assumed when you get sober your 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 most your recent difficult time was over 15 years ago right are you telling me that we still go through difficult times in sobriety <laughs> well that's right oh, um, i've had okay. a few challenges <laughs> well, you know for sure. I do, I uh, do. It's a relationship, even setting up something like I've set up, you know, obviously a lot of investment. To some extent, you know, taking risks can be difficult, can't they? Anything that triggers anxiety and fear, we rely on our program. Yes, and uh, that's what I was just going to get at. And any life yeah. difficult times still happen in life, but boom, you've got a program to fall back mm. on. And how important is that? It's not just so important, and I wouldn't be here today. I believe I wouldn't be here today without it. But it's made my life so much more than it would have been, I think, had I not been an addict if you can understand, or alcoholic, if you can follow my drift. So, you know, sometimes, you know, I, when you hear people say in that classic uh, cliche, a grateful alcoholic, yep. you know, I'm grateful. Now I can say I'm grateful because I found this program and I might never have found this program otherwise. And the programs uh, enabled me to be someone, you know, that I never thought or believed I could be, you know, helping other people. I'm helping, other, I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm doing good in the world. Uh, you know, I have a lot of people and I get emails, you know, 
Uh, I might be having a, a tough day at work, you know, it happens. And uh, <laughs> I get an email out of the blue saying, Simon, it's me, Joe, or, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember me. It was three years ago. You helped me. Just to say I'm still still sober and I, I got married or I had a kid and I'm working. I just want to say, just let you, you know, just those little messages. Anyone in my position, and there's lots of people out there, even sponsors, you know, every, will know what I'm talking about. That just gives you such a, you know, you sit up straight in your chair and you go, yes, that's why I'm doing this, you know. Paul, <laughs> yeah. like I said earlier, it's one of the most stressful jobs, well, I've ever had. And I think in my judgment that anyone can have, trying to help addicts and alcoholics because the disease is probably one of the most powerful diseases known to man you know, because of the denial aspect. But I uh, won't go into that anymore. But <laughs> Simon, <laughs> there have been many times, you know, episodes 10, 20, 30, 40, 75 weeks I've been doing this. There have been many times where life has happened. It not happened to me. It just happens. And I say, mm. why? Why am I doing this every Monday? And I have a corkboard yeah. now where I've started to print out those emails. And all I have to do is take a look at it. And it's stacked Full. I mean, there's probably 50, 60, 70 printed out emails yeah. and there's yeah. a thousand, there's thousands others that I haven't printed out, but that's why I'm doing this. Um, it, it feels good to help people. Zig Ziglar said it best, help other people get what they want and eventually you'll get what you want. And, mm. and, and Simon, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Okay, let's go. <laughs> All righty. Oh, here we go. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory from drinking was, I think, waking up in the docks in uh, Athens uh, with no money, covered in bruises and scrapes and, and just feeling complete, well, feeling so ill, so sick, wondering how am I going to get back to England? Is this <laughs> Athens, Greece or Athens, Georgia? <laughs> Athens, Greece. Okay. I, I had gone on some mad journey, but that's what comes to mind. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Took a drink. I ended up in Athens, Greece, and crap. <laughs> Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you might not be able to control your addiction? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think it happened to me early on in life. I, I had that r realization uh, quite young, I think it was about 16, and I, I, I think I swapped my first car for some drugs, you know, and I, I realized afterwards, oh my God, this is taking everything that means anything to me, uh, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah, it, it does. I think my first my first car would have gotten me a six pack of <laughs> of America. You know, it was a 1982 yes, it Volkswagen. It yeah, it wasn't a very a very nice car, but <laughs> it went. I think it got me twenty-five pounds worth of something. Wow! Wow! Next question: What is your favorite resource in recovery? Broad question, but I can't wait to hear your answer. Well, my favorite resource is the most crucial resource. I have to say, it's a personal choice for people or a personal thing, but it's the spiritual, the third step. I think that's what's made all the difference to me. Uh, prayer, prayer. Is, is a resource that has made all the difference to my recovery and uh, it works basically that's why I use it so when I have difficult times and I do uh, difficult moments difficult times 
I, I pray. I turn to my higher power, and I either hand over or ask for help, and it never fails me. It hasn't so far, shall we say. Good old HP baby, as Omar would say from the Share podcast. i got two more questions for you. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, the best advice. Oh, I can't, trying to. I've had so much advice. Um, let it go. <laughs> it's, it's probably the most common one. Simon, let it go. Just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough. Yeah, yeah. Passenger wrote a good song about it called Let It Go. Seriously, it's acceptance is the answer is what that means for me. And last sure. question, Simon, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? Yeah, um, what I, I my advice is to reach out and accept some help. You know, um, we can't do it alone. It doesn't work, um, and it doesn't work for long if we do. So uh, we, we can't recover in isolation. We need each other, and we need you. So if you are listening and you want to stop, we need you. I need you, because without you, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So contact me, whether you. Uh, for any reason, not just uh, wanting to come to rehab or anything like that. Just contact me. Uh, my email's there, um, and um, I'm willing to help if I can. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. You're welcome, Paul. It's been a pleasure and very interesting. We are doing a Cafe Recovery Elevator Meetup in Chicago October 14th through the 16th. If you'd like to join us, all you got to do is join Cafe RE. Currently, it's 12 bucks a month. We will be going to 14 in mid-August. It's going to be 40 to 50 of us hanging out in good old Chicago, getting to know each other and adding people to my own personal recovery network. We've had three meetups so far, and I'm confident to say this one will be incredible just like the last. The level of enjoyment really has nothing to do if we go to a Chicago Cubs playoff baseball game or Chicago Bears football game. I know that the spark will happen within five minutes of getting 40 like-minded individuals in a room together. This is how it's going to start. Hey guys, I'm Paul. I really sucked at drinking alcohol. I had trouble quitting. I'm an alcoholic. What's going on with you guys? Insert best weekend of your life. It's going to be awesome. As you heard me just say, getting outside your comfort zone, give it a shot. Come join us. Come hang out. Meet us in person in Chicago, October 14th to the 16th. Can't wait to meet you guys. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We gotta take the stairs back up. We can do this.